You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Patreon. <laughs> Patreon? Patreon. Patreon feed. Thanks for supporting my mom. <laughs> My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at PsychShrinkMom or at Neurotic Nourishment. So I've got to be honest with you, listeners. After I spoke to Evan Jarshar, I was left with a lot more questions than answers especially about his kidnapping. I've listened to him speak on several different podcasts and he is never consistent about the timeline. The year changes, his age changes. He'll add information or subtract information. Frankly, he really doesn't want to talk about it and yet somehow he knows that he has to, which makes me curious because he's the one that put that information out there. But a lot of the information appears to be scrubbed from the internet, which if you didn't know, you can in fact pay a service to scrub your history or some of your history uh, from the internet. And people will do that if they think that they are in danger or um, even if they just need a fresh start. And I have no problem with that. Hell, if... uh, If we had camera phones when I was younger, yeah, I would probably have needed to do that too before becoming a psychologist. Still, it really got me curious. You put yourself out there as a, you know, a public figure and a good one and you go on national television and and yet somehow there's this one little part that you still want to remain hidden. So when I couldn't find out more about Evan and also out of respect for him as a guest and uh, what I like to consider a new friend, it got me curious about what else was going on during this time. I mean, why was it so difficult to find out more about Evan's experience? Was it just him? Was it kidnappings in general? So I started digging. In 1997, there was a report that came out discussing whether or not the Senate should continue printing missing children's pictures on Senate mail. I'm thinking no, because A, I really didn't even know we had Senate mail. If we did, it goes in the like garbage pile in my house, I think. And that's not a political statement. It's just, we get a lot of mail. Uh, and also I'm right. It turns out that very few, uh, people look at Senate mail. And in fact, over the five years that this program was in use, not a single child was found as a result of Senate mail. How did they know this? Well, what this report did was it compiled a list of the individuals who were the children that had gone missing, 
along with a, um, a list of who had taken the person and then how they had in fact been returned. Like had someone seen them on, um, uh, Adam Walsh's father started the program around then and now I'm blanking on the name of it, but uh, in the document it's referred to as Adam Walsh slash TV, or was it a poster or was it some other nightly news? And so that is where I did found Evan's name and his kidnapping is what was, was is, and it still is known as FA or a family abductor kidnapping. And he was found as a result of a TV slash child search, meaning that he was recovered thanks to being shown on a specific nationwide program or on news slash local program. If you listen to my interview with him, that's not quite what he thinks happened, but I digress. Um, rather than stalking Evan, I figured I could take a look at someone else who was in a, a similar position. So I looked at kidnappings that occurred from 1973 to 1983. And although I would have loved to find someone that started in New York, went to Canada, and then ended up in Florida, instead I found something else super interesting. The story of Beau Arsenault. In 1983, Rebecca and Vaughn Arsenault of Kaplan, Louisiana, finally decided to separate after what seems like several years of remaining in a not so great marriage. Rebecca was given custody of their son, Beau, who was somewhere between 15 and 17 months old, depending on reports. The judge established a steady visitation schedule in which Beau was with Vaughn every other weekend. Except on November 22nd, 1983, Dad Vaughn failed to return Beau at the prearranged time. Soon the Vermilion Parish issued a kidnapping warrant and charged Vaughn with contempt. Authorities soon learned that Vaughn had taken his son out of state to visit Vaughn's parents. And so now, ding, 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 FBI, and Vaughn was wanted for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Mom Rebecca eventually marries, but continues to stay in touch with the Lafayette FBI agents and the National Center for Missing and Exploiting Ch Exploited Children, also known as NCNEC. Sometimes I'm going to shortcut it, but I'll try not to do it all the time. On September 15th, 1995, so this is about 10 years later, 12-year-old Bo is living in Austin, Texas, in a not-so-great home. He's living in a trailer that is often infested with rodents and cockroaches. He's wearing his father's clothes. His shoes have holes in them. Fortunately, as luck would have it, he runs into a classmate and the classmate's mother at the local convenience store and mom takes an interest in Bo. Turns out Bo and his classmate's mom, Candy Slack, are neighbors. They're both in the same trailer park. And so they get close. When Candy's husband, who is like a computer programmer or something, gives Candy a, a computer for a present, Candy is basically saying, thank you, now what the heck do I do with it? Bo is kind enough to help navigate help her navigate the computers. And uh, that's still pretty much what happens with me and anything technology related today. I turn to my 10 and 12. At the time, uh, there were these things called AOL chat groups. 
or online chat groups. AOL was kind of the most popular. Um, if you don't know what a chat group is, uh, it's basically a way for people to connect. Um, it's also the reason um, How to Catch a Predator was a TV show for a while, because it's, it's basically a blind connection site where you see no one's faces, but you talk anonymously, and you hope that the person on the other end that you're talking to, or people, are in fact who they say they are. So on September 15th, 1995, 12-year-old Bo is chatting on the internet with a friend from Delaware. He's helping Candy. These are two women that Candy's met online. One is Colleen Lawrenson from Delaware, and the other is uh, Joni Whiting from Minnesota. So Colleen makes a joke to Bo that she could be his mother since she's twice his age. Sadly, poignantly and pretty fucking importantly, Bo confesses that he wishes he had a mother since he hasn't spoken to his own mom in 12 years. Bo explains that his father said that Bo's mother left him because she didn't love Bo. Colleen Morrison from Delaware just doesn't buy that shit. And neither did Candy Slack, Bo's neighbor, the owner of the computer. She had been growing suspicious for a while. Joni Whiting from Minnesota is in agreement. The three women had only known each other through the online track group, but somehow they both got this, um, well, they all got this spidey sense, this mom sense, I would say. Katie had known Bo the longest. She had become almost a surrogate mother for him. Uh, once again, his home life was crap. There was no phone, no air conditioning. The heat worked only occasionally. Vaughn is often absent, spending most of his time with a girlfriend who, understandably, doesn't want to bring back to this ugly place. And Candy starts to get suspicious. Once again, her spidey sense, her mother's intuition. The three women together start talking and thinking. Colleen, who was the one who initially had the conversation with Bo about him wanting a mother, had asked Candy to read through the transcripts of her conversation with Bo. You see, Candy and her husband being into computers, they were savvy enough to know that this whole online anonymous chat group thing didn't always lead in a good direction. So Candy had been saving, automatically saving on her computer, all um, online correspondence, A, so that she could spy on her daughter, good, and uh, B, just so in case anything happened. It's amazing that in 1995, Candy was thinking this far ahead, and I think it's it's such a statement about the fortuitousness of all these circumstances coming together. So Colleen is asking Candy several times to read the transcripts of her conversation with Bo because she wants her to know how weird it was. But Candy was juggling a lot and she just didn't get around to reading it until Thanksgiving. And can you imagine how long it must have taken to go through like months of transcripts for three to four people using a computer? But once she read the exchange and damn it, I really wanna know what that exchange was, but I couldn't find any evidence of it anywhere. Uh, Candy also was kind of freaked out. Uh, Joni Whiting 
was a 41 year old grandma from Baltimore. She was also extremely eager for Candy to do something, largely to call the authorities. But Candy was hesitant and worried she would lose Bo if his father found out that she'd called the police and took him away. I mean, which that sentence to me means that Candy was pretty certain she was right. But if she were wrong, or if she wasn't believed, then the first thing that Vaughn would do, because he sounds like kind of a scumbag. I mean, he did steal his own kid away from his mom and lie. Um, but Candy knew that she would sort of have one shot not to lose Bo. Finally, in November of 1995, Candy called the NCMEC. Again, that's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and described Bo's blonde hair, blue eyes, the name of his school, the fact that he rooted for the New Orleans Saints, even though he lived in Dallas, and that his name was Bo. And as it turned out, as luck would have it at the time, there was only one missing child named Bo. It was small. I mean, that database was small and thank fucking God. Of course, now it's much bigger. We might not be as lucky if it happened today, but this was a lucky break. An FBI agent showed up at Bo's school to examine Bo's school record and photos, and then he went to meet with Candy. The agent showed Candy a wedding photo of Vaughn and mom, and a photo of Vaughn from his driver's license. Of course, Candy recognized Vaughn. Now, when shown a picture of Bo at two years old, Candy kind of shrugged because who the fuck knows? But those wedding pictures and that driver's license, you couldn't mistake. A few days later, the same FBI agent arrests Vaughn at a local pizza parlor. And I am not clear if this happened in front of Bo or not. I'm really hoping not. Um, this kid's been through enough. But uh, either way, Vaughn is arrested and held at Travis County Jail in Texas, pending extradition back to Louisiana. All this time, Bo has been living only eight hours away from his mother. Pretty soon, Bo's mother and his half-sister fly to Austin to meet Bo. It was the first time he met his sister, the first time he really met his mom, I would say, and it was very emotional. In February of 1996, a lawsuit names 11 people for essentially, my words not theirs, but aiding and abetting this kidnapping. It turns out Vaughn and Bo weren't living alone in Texas. In fact, 11 of Vaughn's family members knew where Vaughn and Bo were and told no one. Worse still, these people, attempted to create false memories. They lied to Bo about his name. They would tell him stories that hadn't happened. They told him that his mother had given up custody and run away to be with another man. Mom Rebecca is rightfully pissed. She says they knew the filth Bo was living in and that he had no clothes and they still said nothing. Rebecca files a lawsuit and asks for over $50,000. But in today's numbers, that's only 70,000. I don't know why she didn't ask for more. Nonetheless, this lawsuit that named 11 people, it may be the largest group of people cited in one lawsuit for kidnapping. It was then, it may still be now. 
On April 27th, 1996, Vaughn's $1 million bail is lowered to $850,000. The judge slash magistrate really doesn't want to lower the bail, but he does because I am really not sure why. Because in the same breath, the judge slash magistrate says, well, Vaughn is probably kind of a danger to Rebecca and or Bo. So yeah, just don't go near them, Vaughn, okay? Um, okay. On September 11th, 1996, the most annoying and political headline ever appears. Man who took son on 12-year-old journey pleads no contest. Correction, men who took son on 12-year journey pleads no contest. Are you shitting me? It's not a journey, it's a kidnapping. But it also made me think back to Evan and was this sort of how it was viewed? Nonetheless, Vaughn pleads no contest to two charges of kidnapping. Each kidnapping charge carries up to five years in prison. I'm sorry, are you kidding me? To be clear, depending on the state, the individual who's sentenced to prison will end up spending either one half to two thirds of their sentence actually in prison. After that, they're eligible for parole. So that means you can kidnap someone, provide them with poor to mediocre care, and only end up serving five to seven years. On top of that, Vaughn is allowed to stay free on bail until the hearing. In December, Vaughn is sentenced to five years of, quote, hard labor. And although Vaughn's attorney admits he isn't exactly surprised, the attorney also claims that the custody orders on file from 15 years ago were simply not valid. I actually believe him. You know why? Because Vaughn kidnapped the kid before the extremely slow-moving legal system could rubber stamp all of this. Boo, attorney. I understand it's your job, but still, boo. Vaughn is released on probation, pending his appeal, which should take two years, which brings me to what the fuck is wrong with our legal system. Somehow Vaughn actually has a job at this point. Uh, according to the Abbeville Meridional newspaper, Vaughn Arsenault is employed, quote, offshore. Meanwhile, mom Rebecca and newly reunited Bo have been bonding over Bo's tech savviness and the growing use of the internet, or as they refer to it in January of 1997, the World Wide Web. In particular, Rebecca and Vaughn become the poster children of the newly launched website of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Until then, they had been relying on phone calls, which are good, but don't contain pictures. As Ernie Allen, then president of the center says, we have come a long way from milk cartons. Apparently, Bo is literally the shining example of what might be, which is fantastic. In February 1997, the Modesto B newspaper published a fantastic article detailing how Bo's mystery was solved. If you have the chance, look it up. It includes a picture of the three women, Colleen Lawrenson, Joni Whiting, and Candy Slack, smiling and hugging seven months after they helped Bo find his way home. One of my favorite parts of the story is when mom Rebecca admits that when she first learned Bo was alive, she immediately had a couple of strong drinks and then worried that he might not want to be with her. I never thought about this before, about how completely gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching and 
soul crushing it must have been for her to finally have her child within her grasp and then have to stop to think or fear or wonder if he would want her. We all have our doubts about motherhood but, and how we do as mothers, but this one just really stuck to my gut. According to Bo though, when he spoke to his mother on the phone, he immediately knew everything would be fine. As per one newspaper's accounts, mom was shown pictures of Bo, and in one of them, he was wearing a, a Charlotte Hornets jacket. Psst, it's a sports team. Mom then went kind of nuts buying Bo a ton of memorabilia, which I absolutely relate to. When my then two and a half year old fractured and dislocated her uh, humerus and had to have major surgery, the movie Frozen had just come out and I spent a shitload of money tracking down every Frozen doll I could find just to make myself feel better about what she had been through. By February, 1997, Bo is living with his mom, his grades improve, and he briefly goes to counseling before, quote, deciding he doesn't need it anymore. I'm not cool with that part. Someone should have made the kid continue counseling. Not because of anything with Bo, but because that's a lot of stuff to unpack. And a short stint in counseling isn't gonna do it. Bo admits that his feelings towards his father are complicated, but he's definitely pissed off at how his dad really fucked with his mom for 12 years. Sadly, but understandably, Bo doesn't speak much with the three women who saved him but the three women remain close. I did a little research to see what Bo's up to today. He doesn't appear to have any contact with his father's family or his father, and I sure as shit don't blame him. He does appear to be in contact with his half-sister, which I think is nice. Vaughn passed away, although Rebecca is still alive. Things don't go super great for Bo, despite the initial happy ending. And I say this with concern, love, and respect. It's tough to overcome your demons, especially if those demons are related to you by blood. Bo ends up with a pretty extensive arrest history, but no violence against others that I can see. And frankly, the state which he lives is very quick to um, arrest, ticket, charge. It's extremely common for people uh, to have an arrest record of sorts in that state. I don't know what it is, but that happens in certain states. When I was growing up, we used to say that when you drive through Georgia, you better drive really freaking slow because they'll ticket you for a mile of the speed limit. And other states are like that with arrest records. I wonder though if Bo is his own worst enemy. My heart goes out to him though. It's tough to separate your present from your past. Still, Bo feels like a survivor to me. A few years ago, he posted a meme that read, I have endured, I have been broken, I have known hardship, I have lost myself. But here I stand, still moving forward, growing stronger each day. I will never forget the harsh lessons in my life. They have made me stronger. I love that sentiment. And Bo, if you ever do hear this, 
I believe in you. You got this one, kid. Dear listeners, thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing to Patreon. Thanks for listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, shout from rooftops, smoke signals, hot air balloons, whatever. I'll take any of it. Uh, And if you really like what you're listening, why don't you become a patron? Join our Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. Thanks. Thanks.